players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Deathrite Shaman, Gitaxian Crow, Sensei's Divining Top, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, guys, and welcome to episode three of the Eternal Glory podcast. My name is Anurag Das, and I'm joined by Brian Cook and Wilson Hunter. Today, we have a very special guest for you guys. His name is uh, Jerry Mee. You all know him from Leaving a Legacy. Jerry, how are you doing? Jerry? Uh, Jerry? Jerry, are you there? Did he just leave our call? He was literally here 30 seconds ago. <laughs> I get he left our call. All right. Well, um, how you guys doing? How, how have you been the last two weeks? I feel like a lot has happened. Last week was probably one of the most exciting tournaments in all of Magic: The Gathering, the Mythic Invitational with a one million dollar uh, prize pool, and we saw Mengucci, Andrea Mengucci, the Legacy Video Master himself, take it all. Um, but behind the shadows, I think uh, a very special someone was working on making the stream actually just fantastic to watch. Uh, Mr. Wilson Hunter, tell me about your experience. I heard Cardboard Live made it big. It was great. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We had a couple of our features uh, used on that stream by Wizards of the Coast. So if you wanted to see player deck lists or player bios during the event, you could click on Cardboard.Live and see those that information. So it's a great time. We think that this is uh, maybe the, the beginning of doing a lot, many more exciting things for, for Magic streaming. Yeah, it's pretty cool, actually. I think I heard, what was it? They announced today, so this is Tuesday, so um, MTG Atlanta was going to be the next Legacy Grand Prix in September. And September 20th to the 22nd, to be exact. Yeah. And one of the big things that I think just like went totally under the radar, apparently, was that all deck lists would be online, submitted online. Is that correct? I did read that as well. I think that's a positive change. However, one thing I've noticed is some players don't take that seriously enough because they act like they'll have another chance for submission. So I know some local players personally that have submitted, like, for example, days twice in a deck list, not realizing, like, oh, hey, I should take this more seriously like you would a written sheet of paper. Mm, interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, the the big point, I think, is that it's kind of cool that uh, I feel like that's, just like, another opportunity for Cardboard Live to, you know, integrate in deeper into to, uh, the, the trenches of Magic the Gathering. I think that's really cool because I think it's... Well, I think it's it is it's just like it is the next step in in magic coverage. Um, so, Bryant, tell me what have you been up to? So, Wilson's been you know working on cardboard live. How about you? What, what's been uh, keeping you awake at night? I've been diligently testing for the Leaving a Legacy Open three this upcoming weekend in Boston, and uh, it also serves as a dual purpose for the upcoming Grand Prix in Niagara Falls. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Speaking of which, Niagara Falls is just like right around the corner. Um, 
looking forward to that. I'm excited to see like all, all uh, you know, my magic friends, and uh, should be just a fun weekend in general. Um, on my end, let's see, what have I been up to? I've been playing a lot of Sekiro, so I don't know. You guys, you guys probably don't know, but uh, it's one of the Soulsborne games that just came out. It's insanely fun. And otherwise, yeah, just also practicing for the the PTQ this this weekend as well on Magic Online. I think it's on Saturday the sixth, but uh, I'm not actually totally sure. I should actually, I should definitely check that out before uh, before Saturday just to make sure I actually sign up for the event. Um, Otherwise, how's your how's your dog doing? How's my dog? Honey is great. Right now, she's on a long walk with Maham. They just went to the park, so they might interrupt us halfway through. Uh, but that's all cool. Um, I'm, I'm I'm glad you asked, Wilson. I'm glad you asked. You know, actually, I was thinking about this. I was gonna make an emote for my Twitch channel, uh, just like a honey emote. But I'm still thinking about what I should do. If you guys have any any thoughts, let me know. Well, I know for my own Twitch channel, I'm currently working on a Wilson Hunters shiny head emoji so that way people when they subscribe or type anything into the chat they can use cardboard live in multiple ways do i get royalties from the emote use you do not (laughs) that's okay i i approve of of you using that um anarag may need to pay though yikes you you don't like you do not like uh bald characters though do you anarag why we you... are both on mass drop parted hair. Yeah. Why? Why would you say that though? I, I love. I love bald people. Well, I, I'm thinking more of a three mana white creature that has uh, been noticeably absent from quite a few of your miracles. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Let, let's let's be very clear here. Last week in the legacy playoff, this guy had three monastery mentors in his deck list. Also at SCG Syracuse, this guy had three monastery mentors in his deck list. So really, I don't even know who I am anymore because uh, I've been playing a little bit too much of that card, if I do say so myself. So this is a little bit off of our show notes, but Anurag just reminded me. So we were having a chat after the uh, playoff last week, and Anurag mentioned that he didn't think that any of his opponents ghosted him while he was recording probably the biggest Moto Legacy event of the year. And that's something I don't think I agree with. I think if you're going to give eight of your uh, eight of your opponents the opportunity to cheat against you or gain an advantage against you, however you decide to look at it, in the biggest event of the year, if you're providing free information, I think they're going to take advantage of that. Wilson, do you have any thoughts? Okay, so thinking this is coming up, is that what you said? It had previously what? happened last weekend. Okay. Yeah, I think that that's certainly a risk. Um, well, was there a delay? There was no delay. No, it was just live. I thought about it. I even posted on Twitter with, uh, like my own personal thoughts about it. Uh, ultimately like, you know, I had the option to put a hand hider or add a delay or just do it live, like raw dog it. And I, I chose with, uh, I chose the, uh, the most vulnerable option, but the, the option that I think provided the most enjoyment for the viewers. Yeah, I was gonna say that 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 benefits the community the most. So I think people out here certainly appreciate. So let me let me run this the other way around, Wilson. If you were streaming that event, what would you do? Would you do it live? Hmm. If I were the player, if you were the player, and Brian, I'm gonna ask you next. So have your answer ready. It's tough. I'm I'm fairly spiky, and I'm not as good of a streamer as you. So I. I don't know if I would, but at the same time, like you have great content and I think 
uh, have a good stream brand to the point of there's a, a significant benefit for, for your channel in general of streaming an event like that. So I can see like if I were you as a person, I may have done that as well. Brian? So I think the biggest gain that you got from it was that you had constantly 150 people in your channel watching and interacting with you, people talking about what they faced, who they, what, what everyone was playing, et cetera, which was amazing. Uh, the issue with that is you personally are losing in my eyes because this is your one opportunity for this quarter to qualify for the event that qualifies you for the Pro Tour. So you have to weigh the amount of viewers gained that you wouldn't have from a typical Sunday challenge or something like that compared to your opportunity cost of maybe not making the pro tour in the long run. And I think to me personally, I don't know what your goals are in magic, but the pro tour is means a lot more to me than gaining five extra viewers or 10 extra viewers in the long term because you're already averaging 125 to 130 on a weekday. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so ultimately you're right though. That is, eventually the conversation I had with myself, which is where do I, what do I want to be doing, you know, in playing magic? Um, you know, what do I see? Where do I see myself in like a few years or even like the end of this year or whatever. And I, I kind of realized that streaming is the most important thing to me right now, more important than competitive events and things like that to the point where I might not even play in Niagara Falls. If I get an opportunity to, uh, do some coverage related things and, uh, I don't know, that, like that's and that's like just me going deep. Like that shows you like the sort of vision I have for myself. But anyways, that's that's a different topic for a different day. Um, but yeah, that, that's a I w- yeah. Go ahead. I would love to see you having conversations with yourselves. That's oh, well, they're mostly like inside my head kind of thing. I've never I, I don't actually like sit in front of a mirror and be like, Yo, what's up? Not much, dude. What about you? You know what I mean? Like I'm. I'm I'm almost that crazy, but not there yet. Um, the the best thinking is done in the shower. It's a fact. That's why Reddit has a subreddit called you know Shower Thoughts. I I do like that subreddit a lot. So we're gonna move on now. Um, so as in the last last episode, this time too, we will uh take a look at some of the feedback that we got from uh our listeners uh on on the topic of why people play Legacy, and I'm gonna kick it off the bat, Mister Looper says, because Modern doesn't swing for 20 on turn two. <laughs> I wonder what kind of player Mr. Looper is. Yeah, I, you know, I always feel like Magic, there's like a degree of, um, like, you know, like the the meme where it's just like Magic is zero sum, like one person is having all the fun, whether it's through like Chalice of the Void or like Counterbalance or Blood Moon or some insert you can't play Magic card here. Yeah, like making a 2020, you know, that turns sideways on turn two is one of those forms. So I definitely understand that like Legacy and to a degree like Vintage 2 are like the formats where you get to do some of the most busted things. Do you think that Chalice players are honestly enjoying themselves? <laughs> I think it, when you cast Chalice of the Void, neither player ends up having fun. This is coming from the uh, the Storm player, by the way. No, no bias, right? No. <laughs> I mean, I've talked to a lot of Chalice players, and they don't find their decks to be, you know, that entertaining. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I can see that Turbo Depths would be a fun deck in general. I think it's cool that it has gotten better in Legacy in the last couple of years. It is a combo deck that wins in the red zone, and I think there is a fun element of that, whether or not objectively that makes a lot of sense. You know, something like Sneak and Show even, 
Uh, I know Bryant's over there, just like never able to. He's just certainly not able to relate to the sentiment. Actually, I don't know. You you like the palming the twenty goblins and just turning your whole arm on the table, don't you? <laughs> I do. Yeah, so you can sort of relate. So the next Reddit comment is, it's the only format where you can play Chub still without making a complete fool of yourself. Okay, from Julian Knob. Ethical question. What is Chub still? It's Chub Toad and Standstill. It was a really bad meme. It's like another, it was a former private stompy. It was after the uh, Minotaur deck. I'm surprised you know this. Also kind of impressed that you know this, but okay. There was a Minotaur theme meme on MTG The Source where all the moderators, uh, this was probably like 10 years ago, all bought into the meme of uh, calling a deck Thunder Bluff and adding it to the deck to beat section. Uh, it was a Minotaur-based deck with Didgeridoo, and they added in a fake card named Anabagrunt, and Chubb still was the second coming of this meme. Okay, nice. Well, um, okay, yeah. And so the last comment we have is from Scott 85 So much nostalgia. One thing I garnered from this is a lot of us started playing because we're super competitive, yet cerebral. A bunch of stuff about Pro's Blue. What? All right, I'm... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, he had a lot of great comments about combo decks, Pros Bloom, and some other things. Um, but okay, yeah. Anurag, do you know what Pros Bloom is? No. You don't know what Pros Bloom is? Mike Long? Yeah. Dude, Mike Long is from the city of Charlottesville, Virginia, where I currently I live. Didn't, I, I don't know what any of this is. What, what is Pros Bloom? Pros Bloom is uh, Prosperous Bloom, I believe the card is called. Plus, you would run uh, Prosperity. Cadaverous Bloom. Uh, Cadaverous Bloom, I'm sorry. Uh, but you would run Prosperity, which is the Pros part. So each player would draw X. The way that uh, Cavernous Bloom is, you would discard a card and add two mana, and eventually you just drain life your opponent for a ton. Uh, it also ran Squandered Resources, and one of the urban legends of Magic is that Mike Long won a game without a drain life in his deck because his opponent conceded. That's hilarious. Mike Bloom was like the original combo guy. He was a Pro Tour fixture, but also a huge cheater. He was a really big deal back in the 90s. I see. Uh, for a long time after, I, I pun not intended, but uh, when the Tendrils decks first came out, they were all called Long, after Mike Long. He also owned the local card shop. He co-owned it in Charlottesville with somebody else. And one day he just up and left and took all of the Power 9 and the entire inventory. Oh, wow. Um, sort, sort of Big crazy. yikes. All right. Well, that's uh, interesting to know, I guess. Anyways, back to the quote. So super competitive yet super cerebral. I grew up with this game and God willing, I'll be able to teach my son, who's 10 months old, and watch him enter legacy tournaments one day. That's awesome. I have two children. And uh, I, I picked this comment out of the Reddit thread because I share a similar sentiment. And, you know, maybe my kids don't like the same things I do someday, but it would be very cool to be able to teach them Magic the Gathering if they do decide to like the game. Uncle Bryant is going to make them Phillies fans. Oh, good heavens. Good heavens. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of cool, too. I mean, I didn't actually get the luxury of or I didn't get the, the benefit to play like back in the day, I guess, uh, in air quotes. So a lot of the history of magic is like lost on me. Um, it's actually really cool from like, I don't know, from my perspective, looking at other like older veteran players, like, for example, like Jarvis, you right? like a lot of the time, like, you know, we randomly like talk about cards and things and like interactions. And he'll just be like, yeah, I remember like, you know, back in the standard day when I used to play with so so and so and I was like, wait, what you actually did? Um, playing with all sorts of cards. So it's a, 
I think that that sort of nostalgic factor is kind of cool. Like even to like a lesser degree, you know, like me getting to harken back to, you know, like, I don't know, just like cards like top cruise band, all those sort of formats. Um, it's not necessarily the exact same thing that, you know, Rice Scott is talking about, but I think nostalgia is like really big and it's, it's, it's like a heartwarming world wholesome kind of thing, you know? So that's pretty cool. So we're going to move into the first topic of the day, and that is data. I prefer data. You prefer data. All right. I was about, <laughs> literally, it was the first thing on my mind. Is it data or data? Uh, is that an ethical question? So we're going to go around the table, I guess. I'm going to start with uh, Wilson. How do you track and how do you use data? Well, I prefer data. Um, but for legacy, I don't track it. And I don't know. I, it's, I was giggling because you're, they're starting with me because I made these show notes and I made this nice little section for them to fill in their thoughts. And the, that section is still blank uh, upon the recording of the show. But, uh, but anyways, I guess our, fan, our listeners never had to know that, but they do now. So for, for legacy data tracking, you know, I don't really do it. I spent a, a large portion of my college life doing this and obsessing over deck lists and mapping out archetypes. Um, I, I like to look at the metagame and data that other people have collected via resources like the source or great content web websites. Sometimes the epicstorm.com has nice uh, data on some of the articles, which is cool. And then uh, create a game plan based off of those results. So in terms of tracking my own data, don't really do it. But this will lead to, into a conversation we have later, which is about uh, mapping out a sideboard plan for the expected field. And that is something that I, I do like to spend a lot of time doing. Now, I did I was involved with uh, helping, I guess, add my results to a spreadsheet for Pro Tour limited testing. And I thought that was definitely interested, interesting data because it was sort of in a, in a closed group where there's a lot of good players reporting the results and it's data that you couldn't really access at that point in the format. So I, would, I thought that was incredibly helpful. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's been my experience. Yeah, all right. So, so, okay, that's an interesting take, Wilson. Uh, Brian, how do you feel about data? I record everything. I record paper magic, online magic, the type of events, deck list I used, card differences. I record it all. So I look at it as fantasy baseball for myself. And I tried to not take it too seriously, but I use it for bigger picture sort of things. Like over the course of four months, is my deck still... Uh, is good in the metagame, or is this change that I made bad for my deck long-term? Like, for example, Mox Opal, did my win percentage go down or up over 2,000 matches? Like, that sort of thing to get bigger scopes. And I think one of the things people fall into a trap under is playing 30 or 40 matches, which is a pretty small sample size, and then getting caught up in these changes that might just be a hot streak or a cold streak or bad variants, good variants, etc. So I think it's important to look at how games are being played out. Was this card relevant and things like that? And I think one of the best ways you can do this is a large data set. So uh, the second topic I want to bring up that isn't actually in our show notes is sometimes people get a little too into their data, uh, specifically Moto, because the Moto metagame is very different from paper. So if you ever go to like a GP or Star City, Delver decks and Stoneblade decks are always more heavily represented. 
And sometimes people will look at the Moto metagame and see Ants 9% of the metagame. Well, Ad Nauseam Tendrils and TES combined are never bigger than 2 to 3% of any paper tournament. So I think sometimes people get a little caught up in their data too much and you need to take a step back and really think about what's going on instead of just only looking at the numbers. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Actually, I kind of have... I kind of suffer from that problem because I almost <clears throat> exclusively play on Moto. I haven't, you know, I don't very frequently play in paper. And so really whatever is trendy on Moto, like whatever flavor of the week or flavor of the month is, is popping up in, you know, the queues is really what I try to tailor my deck list towards. Um, and I think it's come, it's bitten me definitely a couple of times where I may have like, um, a couple card choices that just, you know, probably are like over the top or overkill. And I always like, I'm able to justify why it's okay. But at the end of the day, you know, like, like you mentioned, like taking a big picture look at what's going on is, is actually just extremely healthy to, I don't know, just not fall into the traps that, you know, specific sets of data can maybe provide. Something that I think is interesting, and this is one of the few times where I feel like the online metagame and your expected metagame at a GP or Star City align, because right now Stoneforge Mystic is everywhere, and so is Delver of Secrets. But typically, even when uh, like Grixis Control or Miracles are in the most popular deck, in paper, Delver and Stoneforge are still more popular, or as popular at least. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, so my take on the whole data situation, I guess. Data. Is, I think, I, like, I've stopped tracking my data. I used to. You see, I lived with Bob for a couple years, and I think he's the one who got me into, like, just, like, numbers, right? And, like, for a while, I was just, like, all gung-ho about it. And then, I mean, the, the honest truth is I got lazy, right? I missed a couple matches here, missed a couple matches there. And then it was just like, well... I don't know. It's, it's it's really really hard. From my from my my perspective is that it's extremely hard to properly capture data unless you are doing. I guess exactly what Bryant is doing, which is capturing everything, right? And I I don't know. I we had a conversation. You know, the three of us we had a conversation about this last week, which is also just about validating the integrity of the data, like the source data, right? Like if you're playing on Magic Online, right, and your opponent like accidentally f sixes through their first turn and misses their first land drop, right, and you end up winning the match. How do you record that in your data? You know what I mean? Um, I also have like F, F2 or F6 through a turn before. Uh, I've misclicked. I've made mistakes. My opponents have made mistakes. In the long run, I think all that stuff averages out because no one's perfect. And there's other things like that because people are like, well, I should have won this match, but I did this instead. I'm going to count it as a win. I don't do any of that. I record things exactly as they happen. And I think that helps in the long run because like people misplay in real life and no one's perfect. And that goes along with uh, our conversation we were actually having last week was like, well, I'm 60% against miracles, but how many of them are elite level caliber? But that's not what you should be preparing for because you're going to face everyone from Reed Duke to Anurag Das at a GP. That was a... <laughs> Don't don't be mean to read like that. What? Uh, but the the truth is, you're gonna face a wide range of player, and you don't you shouldn't have to be prepared to beat Reed Duke every round. You should be prepared to face the average 
deck opponent every round and just do your best and having a matchup percentage doesn't mean that you're 60 percent against reed duke that gives you your odds against the field and you have a you have an understanding of what you should be doing and that sort of thing uh i wouldn't go into a matchup blind going well i'm 70 percent i'm going to win that's not how magic works uh but it helps you know what kind of hands you could keep and that sort of thing yeah i'm going to throw my support behind bryant here if you are the type of person like these gentlemen who enjoy recording your data, then a large sample size absolutely accounts for all of this. And any amount of human bias with picking and choosing matches to not include in your data set is going to be way more detrimental to the integrity of the results than simply recording absolutely everything because uh, a large sample size uh, accounts for all of that. So I agree with you, Brian. Yeah, I, I'm still unsure where I, you know, am on this matter. Um, I, I think it's, it, it depends how deep you want to go with calculating your data or like tracking your data and stuff like that. Like if you know your opponent made a mistake, I, yeah, I don't know, like large sample size probably solves all the issues, but like if you had like categories of, you know, like, nah, actually, I don't even know. Now let's keep, let's keep going. Let's let's keep talking about this because I disagree with you from a, a logical standpoint. I, I Well, I haven't even said anything yet, so I don't even I think know. Wilson's assuming your stance that you had a few days ago. Okay. So I, I think it is important to keep track of, let's say, like the win rates before. Now, first of all, I'm just going to put like a blanket, like a magical blanket over here that assumes that we can actually properly track um, this kind of data, right? So moving on to the actual point is, let's say we have like players of like, you know, the low tier, the mid tier, and the high tier. And, I don't know ethically if it's okay for me to like, you know, categorize players in this sort of department. So if that's not something I'm supposed to do, sorry, I I don't know. But I think it's important to, you know, like, let's say you do have like a blanket win rate of like, let's say 60%, but your win rate against the high tier players is like 20%. And then, you know, your win rate against the other two makes it so that you actually have a a 60% win rate. I think that's actually very important to distinguish because let's say you actually do end up you're like round 15 and you do get paired up against someone of redo caliber right are you really gonna like rely on your 60 percent against the field you know number to help you define how you build your okay i want to break i'm gonna break some things down here because and i'm sorry to interrupt you but bryant looked also excited to to jump in and i wanted to beat him to the punch so what part part of what you're describing is good additional information tracking is only a positive thing. So if you want to add a category of subjectively determining the skill of your opponent and put that into three different categories and track that, I think that extra data is is helpful. But if you use that to somehow weed out results or if you interpret that in ways uh, that are not necessarily correct, and this is where we get into sort of the next part of this discussion i disagree with both of you on this okay well this will be interesting to, to hear from um but I, I think that interpreting that data is where i i may disagree which is over over uh what, what's the word for this Overemphasizing the importance of being good against a good uh, against a great player like a reed duke when in reality aggregating all play skill is going to 
best replicate any event. And that's where you're going to get the best data in general. So while I think my, my thesis, I guess, to summarize is that it is good to track additional data, but I think what you are specifically describing, that what you want to do with that is worse than the, the aggregate. So my stance on what Anurag just said is I don't like adding in human bias into your data because who are you to judge how good somebody else is? Uh, that has nothing to do with the matchup itself. And in the long term, when you have enough data, you're not going to be 60% against miracles, but but you're 0-2 against Reed, for example. So, But you beat everyone else and now you're 60% or whatever. Because if, like, for example, I have... 94 matches against miracles since the banning of death Rate shaman and probe so i have a pretty good understanding of what my matchup is like and two matches against a skilled player is not going to change what the metrics actually are you're you're sort of saying exactly what i said except my point is that if you're if you're able to understand the aggregated data like you just described it's not bad if you want to add an additional variable for better understanding how you play against players of, of different levels that, that you sort of assign. Sure. I just don't like the idea of you adding in uh, personal bias into player skill. Mm, that's interesting. And so actually taking all of this, I'm going to come back full circle and give you like my official stance, which is why do I not track data anymore? Um, so like I mentioned, I used to track data, Bob got me into it, but then Eric Landon, the reanimator goat himself, he, he, I, like I once, I asked him once upon a time when he was streaming, why don't you track your records anymore? And he was just like, well, I played 180 games against this matchup. I know what the matchup is like, like, you know, like tracking games at this point is like they're the diminishing returns are just like, they're pretty high now. So at this point, it's just like, unless something like drastically wrong happens where I lose like 15 games in a row in this matchup. I'm not really going to, you know, press myself on the data. Just, I, I think the data is very good, a good way to get, um, I think the data is a very good way to get a feel for a certain matchup. And after that, I mean, from a practical perspective, like it's not as useful to me anymore. And I think I can use my time better on other ways to improve in the, in the world so of magic. I think we're looking at this very narrowly because there's much more you can get out of data sets, especially my own spreadsheet. So I get, I get information about myself and also my, uh, the deck lists. So I know that you change a lot and you change your deck list very frequently and you don't really gain enough of a data set. So that might be an issue for you personally, because I know that because you stream, you change things all the time, but I like to play a deck list for 50 to 60 matches before I discard it just to get a feel. And that's enough for me to get a solid idea. I mean, I won't take it 100% like this is true of X card, but it gives me enough of an idea of if I want to move on or continue playing it. And I think to be fair, like Brian, I was gonna say both of you are sort of coming at it from the angle of testing generally one archetype a lot more than others. And, testing small changes to that archetype. I know you can apply what you're saying to testing a lot of different decks, but would you agree that the testing process of, is different if you go into a format saying, what archetype do I play first, and then have to go into tweaking the list if you determine what archetype you want to play? So... That's actually so much more frightening to me to think about. Like, just like if I like stopped playing Legacy and started playing Standard, there's like seven different decks. I would have no idea where to start. Or what if you just did that for Legacy? 
Legacy has a lot of decks too. It'd also be so. Very, if I was very testing good. for a pro tour, I think I would start with twenty matches per deck against uh, like five different archetypes. So I would try to get you know like four matches per archetype and just start at a base level and see what because that gives you enough of a feel for who's favored or at least like what the games feel like. And then from there you can be like, well, I think that deck C is actually good against uh, five of the seven most popular decks. And if maybe I switch a couple of cyborg cards here, which eliminates deck six, and then my one bad matchup is deck seven. Like you Yeah, that's fair. Okay. So real quick, before we just before we I'll give it back to you, Wilson, but um on the show notes, it says just on a line by itself, bad uses of data. So what I think this means is in this segment, we also want to talk about some of the traps that you know you could run into when you're analyzing data. And so let's try and leverage some of these points into our discussion. Um, I think, uh, I think the most important one that you know, immediately screams to me when we're talking about looking at a format from the outside and then picking a deck is how much testing is enough for one deck list, right? So Brian, you said 20 matches. That's, that's um, very low to me. And I'm assuming that's very low to you. So yeah, how much, like, what is, what, what do you consider a small sample size? What is the downside to a small sample size? How much is enough? I think et cetera, 50 so and legacy is a the smallest where I would take any sort of meaning out of a deck list, like 20 matches is not a whole lot, but if I have to test a ton for a pro tour, that's in a month. Uh, I think that's where you start just to get a feel to pick and choose a deck. And then from there you can narrow down and you'd want to test way more with a specific deck. Like that was the bare minimum of playing several different decks. But I think uh, a reasonable sample size for a deck list, let's say for, for a tournament that's two months out, I'd say a hundred to 120 matches is where you'd probably want to be. Okay, so I want to pull this back for a second because I'm putting my shoes, I'm putting myself in shoes of many different listeners who have a lot of different uh, time constraints when testing for this format. And I can relate to this because I don't play as much Legacy as you guys anymore. So if I'm a listener and I say, hey, I just casually like Legacy, I'm sort of getting back into the format. It's very daunting what you were describing. What is a way to go about approaching the legacy format not having zero deck bias, not even knowing uh, what you're going to play? What's, what's a good process of testing and, and collecting data for somebody like that? Okay. So if I had to, if I was in that situation, I'll just try and answer it. I think the first thing that I want to understand about legacy as a format is that at the end of the day, well, like Pro Tour aside, I think it's important legacy that you pick a deck and you stick to it, um, just in the sense that uh, expertise with a deck, you know, knowing the ins and the outs, knowing like the limits of your deck, how far you can push it, when you need to reel back, those sort of things matters more than anything else in legacy. Uh, I'm going to reference my origin story where I read an article by Reed. And, you know, he's talked about mastering one deck is more important than jumping around from deck to deck because, you know, the, the extra percentage points you get, even with like a tier 1.5 deck, you can easily beat tier one decks if you just, you know, play, play super, super, super tightly. If you know how certain matchups go turn by turn by turn, like to the point where at this point, like I can, I'm streaming and I'll be like, okay, look, I'm going to do this. And then my opponent's going to do this. And then I'm going to do this. And then this, this, and that. And that sequence happens so often and I think it's because I've been playing this deck for so long. So that's that's my first first sentiment is you want to find a deck that you can stick to, right? So if you want to find a deck you can stick to, I think it's good to look at maybe some of the top performing decks 
and sort of just like figure out what they're doing on a macro level and pick the one you like the most straight up. That's it. Pick the one you like the most and start testing with that deck. Keep a couple of that you like in mind and then, you know, move from deck to deck just while you're trying to get a feel for it. Once you pick a deck, I guess then you can like dive in further, but you need to, I think it's especially important that you stick to so that. So you didn't deck. really answer the question, which was like how you use data to determine what deck. And I feel like that's a tough situation to be in because Anurag is right in that you have to have some sort of uh, personal uh, bias towards the deck in order to start because legacy is a format that is rewarded by expertise and using data is going to be really tough from the get-go so i think it's more important to look at metagames and analyzing what's good against the top three decks of the moment yeah i think that's a fair take and that's sort of round circle back to sort of uh, how i have been approaching legacy with having less time to play it is using other people's data, looking at metagames as they're broken down through results. And I know that there is some inherent downsides of, of doing a lot of that. Um, but then having to, you know, rely on general game intuition for, for deck building at that point, I think is certainly something that is beneficial. So what I wrote this question because I wanted to ask this to you too, um, which is how do you account for changing metagame with aging data sets so before we get into this and i do have a, an answer for you but going back to tournament prep is any event that i've ever crushed or spiked or anything like that i've always had hundreds of matches in the weeks upcoming to it underneath my belt before i go in so when i won the star city games last year i had literally the format was brand new it was two weeks old i had 200 matches played in that two weeks so I knew what was going on. I knew what my opponents were trying to do way more than they did. So having that kind of experience and knowledge of your own deck list, but also the metagame in a time frame will certainly help you. And that's why data is so important, because I knew that Rug Delver and Stoneblade decks were going to be important. And I built my deck to beat them with two main deck empty the Warren. So if you have that sort of knowledge, it is incredibly beneficial. And I'm just rambling at this point, but that's why data is so good. So to actually answer your question about adapting for changing metagames, so my current spreadsheet, I can filter by decklist, but I can also filter by the last 30 days or the last two weeks or anything like that. So I can account for maybe three weeks ago, Dragon Stompy got popular again, but four weeks ago it wasn't. And I can look at data from both before and after this change. Cool. That makes sense. Anurag, do you have an answer for that? Not really. I mean, again, like, I know Bob keeps track of data by, like, set. So, like, you know, Ravnica comes out. He keeps track of all that sort of stuff. And then um, kind of just, like, erases it when the next set comes out. And I think that's kind of interesting because um, I don't even know. Let me think. How would I? How do I account for the changing meta? I think, for me, it's just that I've played so much that I know, like, in certain situations, you play this card when this deck is good. You play that card when that deck is good. Uh, so it's really just experience having played a number of games, which has taught me that, you know, this is what you do in these sort of situations. So uh, this is kind of a cop-out, but I leverage like my past experience, like the past subset of matches that I've played, um, plus a little bit of theory, you know, here and there, um, combining the two to figure out what cards might be good in certain situations. So... Yeah, I don't know. Like, for example, during the Grixis control meta, um, you know, like right after GP Richmond, like one of the cards that nobody was playing was Celestial Purge, right? 
and you know, I played with the card before. I know that it's you know reasonably good against black and red cards. And Liliana, the Last Hope was everywhere. So for that reason, like I tried it out, um, it worked phenomenally. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really feel like I'm answering the question. I'll be totally honest with you. So let's go back to bad data for a second. So I think one of the most popular uses of bad data is looking at an event result. So let's uh, use Star City Game Syracuse, for example. Death and Taxes was nowhere to be found in day two. People instantly think, oh, well, Death and Taxes is dead. I don't need to prepare for it anymore. No one's playing Death and Taxes. Two weeks later, Death and Taxes put seven copies into the day two of the team event in Cincinnati. Uh, so that, like that it was a very common usage of bad data. And it's it's not a very big sample set. It's one event. Maybe the best Death and Taxes players weren't even there. So I think that's just like one of the most common ways that people misrepresent how decks are in the metagame is based on one or possibly even two tournaments. Okay. I actually have a very fantastic point from this. And I know, I, I think I already know where you guys are going to take it, but do you guys, how much do you like metagaming your decks to beat, you know, like a projected, what, an expected field? For me, I know when I was learning Miracles, I would read Devour All the Articles by Philip Schoeniger. And he, you know, sort of preached this philosophy where it's just like, you want to keep your deck generic. You want to keep it good against like everything, or at least as close to 51% as possible. Um, just because Legacy is like, the metagame is so wide, you don't know what you're going to play against in a Grand Prix on day one. And I kind of stick to that philosophy to this day, where I try to keep everything super, super balanced. Do you guys like leverage the data from Magic Online and Star City Games to, you know, change your card choices drastically? So one specific thing that I'm going to hone in on that you just said is that I would never try to build a deck that is 51% against as many things as possible. And I know you use that in a colloquial manner, but slightly better than coin flip is never going to win an event. So I would say, um, but I agree with the general sentiment of what you're saying, which is, you can leverage the general power of a deck plus your play skill in order to be generally the same amount of better against a field rather than overcompensating for certain archetypes, which could actually hurt you uh, because you really are over overcompensating for it. So I like to look at it as sort of like what you said about 51% might be more like 71%. And if you move the bar up to that, it's like everything else that you said makes sense to me, which is like you're not trying to get 80% against the deck that you, one deck you might expect a lot of, uh, but instead be more conservative and say, hey, I'm shooting for, for really 70% against the field. And then you add in, you know, your, your couple bad matchups that are sub 50 or, or what have you. And you're okay with that because you're, you're making a call. But yeah, Brian, what, what are your thoughts? Okay. Uh, good stance, Wilson. So I think one of the things that you should be doing is realizing that over a 15-round event like a Grand Prix or a Star City Games Open is that even if a deck is super popular, let's use Grix's Phoenix from a couple weeks ago, is you might face it twice. And that's if it's popular that weekend. You could face it once or even zero because Legacy has so many decks. So I don't like over-sideboarding for any specific archetype or even a couple archetypes. So, like, for example, I wouldn't run... Uh, dread of night if death and taxes picked up 
I would just try to run more generic cards that happen to be good in several matchups. So I'd probably run more cards like Echoing Truth or Chain of Vapor or something like that. So if I don't face Death and Taxes that weekend, it's still good against Lands or Eldrazi or something along those lines. Mm, yeah, so I think like instead of like changing one of my Fluster Storms in my sideboard to be like a, I don't know, like a Mog Salvage, I would maybe like transition like a Disenchant towards an engineered explosives kind of deal. Like it's a very subtle thing that's like definitely better in certain cer- certain circumstances, but it's not like as like drastic a change as like, you know, let's let's just, you know, dump on this combo matchup uh for the super narrow card that's really, really good. Like a high variance card, I guess. The the idea is that consistency is critical. That's the point. Yeah. Um cool. All right, that's that's pretty interesting. Uh all right, do you guys want to talk about correlation slash causation or bad... Inter- when we did bad interpretations of good data just now. Correlation and causation, or do you want to move on to the next one? Community's perception. That's all, Wilson. I don't really have anything to say about this at the moment. I believe that the Magic community in general has a low bar for the data that we slash they accept as being good data. And I think that leads to a lot of groupthink bias in ways that don't end up playing out to be uh, great or accurate. And I think some of the best players in the world don't do that. I think that somebody like Brad Nelson ends up being a great deck builder because he isn't following some of what I consider groupthink data, which is not real data, but a community, a, a huge whirlwind of community perception that is built off of a small sample size. And this is just something that I've perceived over the years, and uh, particularly top-heavy results bias. So the decks that win an event, for example, significantly impact community perception. And the difference between winning an event and missing top eight but getting top 16 is, is very small. So in the Swiss, the winner of the event may have had one additional match win, and then they basically won an eight-man after that. And when you think about the, in the big scheme of things, like, great, I mean, that, that one person did very well, but it, it just should not skew the perception of, of, of that deck in, in the aggregate uh, from that. So what do you guys think about that? I agree with you, Wilson. So I think that the groupthink data is somewhat true, especially at smaller events like Pro Tours, where you know that there's only going to be an expected metagame of 350 to 400 people. And if everyone's thinking, hey, Brad is going to be really good this weekend, maybe you want to be on Soul's Eye Midrange or something instead of looking at actual data of decks that are good. You're just trying to play the next level of deck in order to beat the masses. Does that make sense or am I just an idiot? That makes sense. You're also just an idiot. Ding, got him. Wow. I'm just kidding. All right, sorry. No, I, I couldn't not. Right, like it was the setup for that was just like it was right there. I think that's sort of. Me, um, yeah. but okay. I would like an apology. I... Oh, I'm sorry, Bryant. Anyways, all right. So that's gonna bring us to our next topic, or maybe this is just an abrupt transition. But, <laughs> um, recently, my ex roommate Bob Bob who article on Channel Fireball Bob Bobbert Wong. Shang Yun Wang, co-host of Everyday Something, I don't know. Um, Bob wrote an article on Channel Fireball, and the title of the article is "Sideboard Guides Are a Trap." Uh, why don't one of you guys tell me what the article was about? And to we'll read Wilson's there. show notes, it says Bob wrote an article for Channel Fireball that sucks. 
<laughs> so Wilson has pretty strong <laughs> opinions on this. Uh, I happened to read the article and I thought that Bob had some okay points, but he's also pretty far off. And I think that cyborg guides are useful for cyborg mapping, which I think is something that Wilson feels very strongly about. So creating a cyborg guide will let you know if you're getting the best uses out of your slot. So the biggest thing that you'll learn is if you're over cyborging, am I boarding in eight cards for miracles when I'm only boarding in two for a bad matchup? So if I'm already 55 or 60 percent against miracles and I'm boarding in eight cards to get up to that 65 percent, but then I'm losing to reanimator 45% of the time. Is that the most effective use of those slots? And on top of that, you get a better idea of how often you're actually using X card. So if you're only using your one of Tormod's crypt 2% of the time, is it the best use for that slot? Or can you try to get away with cutting it? Yeah, that makes sense to me, Brian. Let me break down generally why I disagree with this article. And by the way, I wanted to talk about this because the article received such positive community reception and we're friends with Bob. So I think it's worth having a, an interesting conversation here. And I haven't seen a single negative word spoken about this article up until now. My issue is that the thesis is that cyborging guides are not good. The evidence he provided for that is what I would consider to be the misuse of cyborg guides or people that, that use it in ways uh, that are lazy. And I agreed with, with the evidence presented, but I do not think that the evidence supported the conclusion that they are generally bad. A, a comparison here would be like if somebody wrote an article that said tracking your data in magic playtesting is bad. And then the evidence they used were a laundry list of ways that people incorrectly track and incorrectly use data. So let me get in now into specifics of what I think the problem is. The reasons he outlined of cyborg guides being poor are when people strictly adhere to a cyborg guide that often they may not have even written for themselves, right? I, I agree that those are oftentimes uh, places where people are hurt, by, by cyborg guys. But here is where a cyborg guide can be fantastic for you. And that is if you use a sideboard guide and sideboard mapping to build your deck to begin with. And the reason for that is that it helps uh, determine the slots that are needed for a variety of different matchups, different decks that attack on different axes in the format. You know, I like thinking about uh, Legacy in that way, whether it's Chalice slash Stompy decks, Merit Lage decks, Combo, storm combo decks. I mean, there's all these different sort of categories of decks. And if you can map out your sideboard in a way where you're bringing out totally dead cards at a minimum for cards that have high impact in all of the popular uh, matchups in the format, that's I think that's a very good start. And then from there, you can get into doing some weighted averages and some interesting things. I mean, you can go deep on it mathematically, but in general, even if you're doing it based on intuition, you're doing this mathematical process of weighting card upgrades. And when I see people who sort of take shortcuts on sideboard mapping, I see people who have to you know, leave in Terminus against uh, show, Sneak and Show uh, or, or, or something or what have you. Maybe Anurag will jump in here and give us some good reason why you should leave in Terminus against Sneak and Show. 
No, I'm against that. I'm so <laughs> so that, that was just a random and extreme example to point out. Cyber mapping has an, a, a reason here. And if you really, if you map out your sideboard with a guide that you can generally follow for an event, you are going to have a much better constructed deck list. Uh, and you, you will have a better game plan when you sit down and look at your sideboard and you don't feel like you're necessarily starting from square one because you've already planned it out. So all that being said, I disagree with the, the thesis of Bob's article, but I think that I agree with the vast majority of the points he made within the article. Yeah, and I think sideboard guides are also useful. So first of all, I just want to take a step backwards and talk about one of the most impactful articles, you know, that helped me helps me build my deck every time. Um, it was an article by Zvi Mauschewitz, um, where he t- he introduces the concept of elephanting, and for the listeners, elephanting is basically where you you look at a bunch of matchups that you want to beat. So let's say like Death and Taxes, Grixis Delver, uh, Grixis Control, or whatever, some Storm deck, right? And you look at the deck list from a perspective, not of the pre-board game, but of the post-board game. So you say to yourself, what is the best 60 cards I can put together for this matchup, right? So, you know, I might have like four swords to plowshares, five sweepers against death and taxes. Against storm, I might try to have like three fluster storms, you know, all my forces, more counter spells, that kind of thing. Then you consolidate all the individual 60 card post-board deck lists that you make and you see like, all right, well, if, theoretically these are all the cards that i would be sideboarding and you get you get an idea of how much your deck is stretched to cover all these sort of matchups and that i think is a really good way to sort of develop not only um well this like forming a sideboard guide this way is probably really good for mostly just figuring out what you want to be doing in each matchup post board what your game plan is um so I got, that's just like another utility of creating a sideboard guide, uh, you know, just reverse engineering one through elephanting that I think is pretty useful. Um, Why is it elephanting? I don't know. You know what? I, I kind of just like listened to him in the article and just assumed that it was like, that's just like what it's called, you know, like it could be wrong. You know, he could have, he could have said like uh, flamincoing and I'd be like, all right, yeah, it's just flamincoing, but uh well, at the time, Call the Herd was a very new and powerful card when Odyssey came out. So, oh, so you're familiar with this concept? No, I'm making up an excuse. Damn it! Well, you got me there. Speaking of Call of the Herd, do you guys know the card Hidden Herd? It is a three-three for one green. I'm mana. well aware. I have no idea what this green card is, and it's an enchantment. I think I think the card is amazing, but I just wanted to to plug Hidden Herd there for a second. No, but Anurag, yeah, go on. Sorry, I'm allowed to talk too. Yeah, it's a three person podcast, and it. I would like some airtime. Ah, uh, you're a Mets fan. Go on. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I love the fans of the Epic Storm, and one of the things, or one of my gripes with the Storm community sometimes, and this could be said for many Magic communities, is sometimes I feel like. We get a little bit too lazy in just accepting things other people say. And while I appreciate people caring what I have to say, I feel like it's really bad sometimes when I try to change things up and it's not well received. So one of an example of this is a couple of years ago, I decided to remove 
all of the plus minuses for sideboarding from the website and I only provided the strategy behind my reasoning, but I didn't give minus two cabal therapy in this matchup, plus two bounce ball, whatever. I didn't write that down. And what ended up happening is in the storm groups, people were just asking for plus minus lists because I wasn't providing them. And people weren't interested in learning. They just wanted to know how to play at that exact moment. And all they wanted was something to jam into their sideboard. And long-term, this isn't good for them, but you can't make everyone happy and you can't force everyone to learn. So it's an issue with sideboard guides is because sometimes people don't want to learn how to play against X deck. They just want something for an event or whatever. But I don't think that this is the best way of going about getting better. Yeah, I think sideboard guys are like a good starting point, right? But you always want to keep track of like, and I think this is maybe Bob mentioned this too, like flexibility is definitely crucial. Like in the Reed versus uh, Alex Masterson matchup, right? Like Reed adapted his sideboarding on the fly. You always want to be able to do that. And to do that, you you know, you need to know how certain matchups um, play out. No, I'm trying to say, what? what I'm trying to say is, is like you want to use the sideboard guide as a starting point and that'll teach you how to be flexible right but without that starting point like it's really really tough to, to, to i mean it's, it's a lot harder for someone to just like reinvent the wheel and learn everything from from the start sure i'll conclude by saying sideboard guides are not a trap the you can use them in ways that are bad or you can you can entrap yourself but sideboard guides are wonderful tools that can be used for wonderful things. Cool. So I think the last topic we may want to talk about is theory versus testing. And this is going to be a last segment, a quick segment. Uh, Brian, you introduced this. I see Wilson is stretching in the background because I know we have a, we have a, we had a heated discussion a while ago. All right, so I'll, I'll actually never mind. I'll, I'll introduce it. Whoa, so we'll, hold on, hold on. I'm going to introduce this. You're going to introduce this. So this first came up when Wilson and I were teammates for Grand Prix Toronto last year, where we talked about how there's two different types of players in Magic. There's players that are very strong with theory, and then there are players that must test everything in order to get a strong understanding. And how Wilson and I both consider ourselves to be theory-based players, or at least I think we at the time we did well i do do a lot of testing and grinding out matches i can look at something and understand why it doesn't work in a certain deck because i've played against that deck x amount of times or something like that so basically a lot of these theory testings come from having a strong understanding of the format and strong understanding of all of the decks in the format so you don't need to know when you look at a card like engineered explosives isn't as good in a two-color deck or things like that uh, I know it seems like common sense, but it's not because people make these mistakes all the time. And let me, can I add something to that, Brian? Theory and testing are not totally separate. I mean, we have this set up here in the notes as they're versus each other, but you have, you can have better theory, a better intuitive understanding of the game from a lot of testing. You know, testing supports the intuitive ability to make judgments on new cards where this is really becomes a debate is testing something new after you have a lot of previous experience in testing versus being able to weigh theory on that new thing when you have experience. 
Okay, is that is that a reasonable clarification of what we're talking about? Yeah, I think so. So, Anurag, I know that you've been itching, scratching, uh, to talk about the next docket, and it's gonna it's a part of what we're saying. So, why don't you introduce it, and I'll quit talking. Yeah, but okay. So, one scenario. So, we we have two scenarios here. The first is, and we're just gonna look a little bit of back back and forth. The first is. Um, for anybody in the Storm community, you know there is one player who goes by the name of 42AD Online. His name is Martin Vonacek, and I had the pleasure of meeting him at GP Richmond. Great guy. Uh, we had barbecue for dinner together. Um, and I know there was one time where Wilson was on stream with, um, I forget who it was, but they got paired up against Martin. And anybody who knows Martin knows that he plays the wackiest Storm list I've ever seen. Like 62 cards main deck. And just a bunch of like oddball choices. And in the post-board game, Martin casts a pernicious deed from the Storm side playing against a Grixis control deck. And a couple nuances in the deck list, but Wilson said this was, I'm pretty sure Wilson felt very strongly that it was very incorrect to beat the uh, board in the pernicious deed. Whereas I was saying, you know what? Trust the master, trust the guy who's played it a bunch. Um... Wilson, you want to clarify? No, that's exactly correct. Okay, cool, yeah. So in this sort of situation, it's just like a nice balance of theory versus testing. So obviously, like, you know, in theory, why would you ever play a card like Pernicious Deed in a Storm deck, which is focused on, you know, comboing off generating lethal Storm when there's so many other better cards, maybe like Echoing Truth or Chain of Vapor or, you know, like a more commonly played Abrupt Decay. You know, Pernicious Deed is extremely mana-intensive to the point where even, like, some of the fair decks in Legacy don't play it. And I was saying, you know, look, Martin has played this card maybe for, like, the past year, even longer. He's probably got, like, you know, over a 1,000 games under his belt. He's probably resolved it, you know, hundreds of times. So in this sort of situation, right, like, there, you can't really come up with a reason for why it's good, and yet it continues to perform. Maybe like a more recent parallel would be uh, at brace it here come the memes like Palace Jailer in Miracles. You know, it's 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 still in testing. I'll, I'll give you that much. But like in theory, it just doesn't seem like a good card. But when it resolves, it does its thing and it wins the game. You know what I mean? There's a lot to unpack in what you just said. So I want to clarify a couple things. Number one, the comment isn't just about the card pernicious deed existing in a storm sideboard. It's about boarding in Pernicious Deed against a Grixis Control deck, and I strongly disagreed with it. And Anarog's like, oh, well, you're probably wrong because you've never played it in a Storm deck before. And so the argument is that, well, I don't need to play Pernicious Deed against a Grixis Control deck to know that I don't need to board in Pernicious Deed against a Grixis Control deck. And that's where we had a disagreement. Um, so there's, there's just a lot of logical examples that you can make with this. Uh, that I know that you would agree with, Anurag. So, for example, I could argue that... Well, no, okay. Every every example I want to use that's outside of the game of Magic is controversial, and I feel like we just would have to edit it out, so I'm not going to say what I was about to say. Um, you, We went down this rabbit hole, right? And I said, Anurag, would you ever play Goblin Guide in Miracles? And I and said, what, no, I would not. No, 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 no. You did not say that. You said, I've never tried it before. 
Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, I've never tried it. Did I say that? I guess I did. I don't know. You said that because that's the only way you could remain logically consistent with your argument. Because it's true. You oh, okay, so, so, so rephrase the question. You're saying, would you try gob, uh, Goblin Guide and Miracles? No, I said, would is... Let's see. I, I actually don't know exactly what I just said. At the time, <laughs> I, I was asking you if Goblin Guide would necessarily be good in Miracles. Okay, what and did you, I say? You said you don't know. Because you hadn't tried it before, because it was in the context of me trying to make a point that you don't need to try a card necessarily to intuitively know that it's not good in an archetype. Okay, sure. Right? So it's you reasonably had to say that in order to have the very firm stance that you have to try a card to know it's not good. Now, that's an extreme example, but it's, it's the exact same line of thought. I know that Goblin Guide would not be good in Miracles. Why do I know that? Because intuitively, I understand how Miracles works. I understand what it's trying to do. I know what the card Goblin Guide does. And I've played enough Legacy to understand that that would be a terrible card to add to a Miracles deck. And I don't have to try it. Okay. And that's that's totally reasonable, I think. Um, I, I want to, like, to the specific example of a card like Pernicious Deed, which is much closer, I think, than Goblin Guide. I think you'd agree with me on that, right? One is just very polarized and very clearly does not belong in Miracles. But Pernicious Deed, you could come up with reasons to play it in Storm, right? You could at least do that. Sure. So this is when you could get into a conversation about, well, Pernicious Deed is good for X reason. And that's what that's already what you are doing. You didn't say what those reasons are, but you are you literally using intuition in what you just said. You intuitively know that Pernicious Deed is more reasonable in Storm then Goblin Guide is in Miracles. And you are using the skill of, of theory and game theory of, of, of like analyzing a card in order to even make that statement in defense of Pernicious Deed. What I want to say, though, is that like if we examine the card Pernicious Deed, right? Yep. We look at the reasons why it's good and we look at the reasons why it's bad. And you, would, yep. you and I would both probably say, you know, the reasons why it's bad heavily you know, outnumbers. There are more reasons why it's bad than why it's good, right? Okay, so I'm saying that despite there being more reasons why it's bad, it's still worth testing, even though you could, you know, you it's it's very clearly just like on the negative side of things to play. There is certainly a scale in which point something might become worth testing, and part of the consideration there is how much time you have to test French cards. Where we had a disagreement is that I'm saying that you can intuitively come to a conclusion on a card even when somebody who has played a lot is playing that card. Do you know what I'm saying? And you said that basically somebody with a lot of testing absolutely trumps game theory and intuition. Whereas I think that there's there's a reasonable amount of debate that should be able to be had without me having ever tried the card in a Storm deck. Otherwise, you can never... Like, basically everything's on the table. You would waste so much time playing so many random things if if the position is literally that we do not know whether or not this is good. And if somebody is playing it and they have played a lot of it, you realize how, like, subjective that is? Then, then it must be reasonable. 
I think cards that are close and within reason, and, and that's obviously very, that, that is what you're saying. It is subjective, right? Within reason. So how far are you willing to go? Like, I wouldn't go like Goblin Guide far, but I think like Palace Shaler is pretty within reason. I think. Well, what, okay. Regardless of what I think about Palace Shaler. Sure, you're, sure, make, sure. you're making an intuitive judgment. And that's exactly what my point is. You are actually bringing in your experience with the game and you probably think that about Palace Jailer because of how good it has been in a lot of situations uh, against you. So you know, like, hey, I can start to envision, you know, based on the way my game plan plays out with Miracles, there are situations in which this card could totally take over the game if I played it in my deck. That is literally game theory taken from intuition that you have built off of your past experiences and not necessarily testing the card yourself to even come to that initial conclusion that it might be worth testing to begin with, right? So ga game theory, intuitive judgments, that, that is absolutely part of deck building and a part of how we play this game. So when we had this debate, I just felt like it was like very black or white. How dare, how dare I question Pernicious Deed brought in against Grixis Control like when I'm not the one playing it? And I think those are just different schools of thought. Like I put much less weight on any pers personalities, any person's opinion on a card who happens to have just played the card a lot in, in Legacy if, if my, my intuition, um, based on my experiences, tell me that, that that's probably not, uh, not a great choice. Okay, and that's, and that's totally fair. I, I think I see, like, a little bit differently. I, I value actual, like, playtesting of a card that seems really bad just in case it could actually be a lot better than like my intuition could be wrong, right? I've been wrong so many times before that I'm, I'm very willing to admit when I am wrong. And I think testing cards that I don't think are good testing bad cards, I guess, or testing intuitively bad cards, I guess, um, is worth it. Maybe cause I just have the time to do it. I don't know. Yeah. So I think that testing cards is fine but you should also have a strong theory and understanding of why you're testing them rather than testing something out just to see if it ends up being good. And while I think that Martin is an incredibly gifted and talented storm player, he tends to play wacky cards and it goes back to something from a couple of years ago when Jared Betcher, the nefarious cheater was crushing star city opens and he was just doing things people weren't expecting while being a very talented player. And that will get you some amount of free wins because no one knows that it's coming. So if someone as talented as Martin is playing something out of left field, it's going to catch people off guard. And if it was expected, it probably wouldn't be as good as people uh, that are prepared for it. What, you know what I'm trying to say here? I'm losing my words, but uh, it's just not as good then. So that's why cards like Abrupt Decay have st stood the test of time where cards like Pernicious Eden Storm have not. Mm. The element of surprise, basically. Yeah, I hear you. Um, but related to this, the second point that we want to talk about is a card that was recently spoiled for, uh, was it War for the Spark? Uh, one blue and a white. Teferi, what is it, Time something? Teferi Time Raveler. So it's one blue and a white for loyalty. And it has a number of effects. You can check it out on mythicspoiler.com. Um, I think when it was first released, when you know it was spoiled the day before yesterday or whatever, everyone was super hyped up about it. And then Wilson took a look at this card. And Wilson, what was your what was your reaction? Doesn't look very good. Mm, yes. Yeah. So how how do we feel? Why is this an interesting card to look at? 
Well, you tell me first. What makes you really excited about it, Anurag? Uh, okay, cool. So I think the first line, um, I'm just going to read it. Each opponent can cast spells only at any time they could cast a sorcery. Super powerful in the context of a deck like Miracles, um, just because, you know, this is a deck that one of the most powerful ways to, to combat it, counter magic, or, you know, like steel tempo with a card like Abrupt Decay, for example, that we can't respond to. Uh, turning off those sort of avenues is very, very powerful and can lead to future snowball turns in combination with it having four loyalty. So cards like Lightning Bolt aren't even good against it. So it's it's reasonably resilient. Um, okay, stop stop real quick. Sure. What, what would you pay for an enchantment that has the static ability that you just described? By itself? By itself. And nothing else? Nothing else. Uh, what would it take for you to play that card in the main deck of your Legacy Miracles deck? How much would it have to cost? As an enchantment, they can never be attacked or bolted. I probably wouldn't play it, even if it was zero CMC. Okay. So, uh, maybe, maybe if it was zero. Maybe no, that's kind of, cause that's kind of busted. No, no. The, the, I think that's reasonable. So continue. Okay. And I think the minus three effect is something that the Miracles deck is desperately seeking for in a format where players have evolved their decks to basically stop the Miracles player from playing magic between cards like Choke and Chalice and things like that. Can you please tell us or tell the viewer what the minus three effect is instead of just saying... Sorry, so the minus three is return up to one target artifact, creature, or enchantment to its owner's hand, draw a card. Okay, so... I think we're on three different levels of why this card is playable. Anurag is someone who's always very excited to test new things and try new things out, which is fantastic because, let's be honest, somebody has to do the legwork for the rest of the community. Uh, Wilson, a little bit of a, I don't know, pessimist here. He's, <laughs> he just got a shit-eating grin. Uh, he likes being negative and shutting things down from the get-go. But I think he's got strong theory behind why this card isn't good, which he'll tell us about in a few minutes, and I'm in the middle. So I can see both sides of why this card is playable, because having a versatile main deck card to answer problematic permanence, because sometimes your opponents do play cards that are troublesome, for lack of a better term, in your game one, and having a card like Council's Judgment or this new Teferi allow you to get out of sticky situations. The problem that I've seen across the internet the last few weeks, or few weeks, few days, is that people are talking about cutting cards like Council's Judgment for this new Teferi. And I think you can't just look at it one for one without looking at the metagame. So one of the key reasons people play Council's Judgment is Trinium Nemesis, other Planeswalkers, and even Emrakul. And Teferi isn't exactly good against those three cards. Yeah. That's reasonable. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, Anrog. Sure. What would you pay? What would it take for you to play a card that is a sorcery mm -hmm. that says the text that you just read on Teferi? By itself? By itself. I would uh, probably pay two mana. Okay. You would main deck a blue bounce spell that bounced a permanent and drew a card uh okay i wouldn't main deck i played my sideboard for sure though i would consider playing it to my sideboard i would i wouldn't main deck it 
but I would definitely. I don't. I don't think boomerang draw card would be legacy playable as a sorcery. Oh, as a sorcery too. Okay. Well, that's uh, what, yeah. I mean, because that's what this is. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have to be like one mana then. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Okay, no, no. That that's that's just too broken though. One mana, bounce something, draw a card. It would if it was two mana, I would consider playing it, but I wouldn't lock it in. How about that? Okay. As a sorcery is uh, the sorcery part breaks it actually. Sorcery one mana. Okay, it's between one, like one and a half mana. That that would be perfect. Okay. Reasonable. That's a reasonable answer. Um, if it's two mana, let's say that a two mana card like that existed, do you think that the legacy community would be saying that the printing of that card is totally going to change the format and and basically break legacy? A two mana printing of the minus three effect would not. No, that would not garner that reaction. I think it would be probably garner the community reaction of like, oh, this might be a neat utility card to put in. Probably not even deck. that. You're right. I'm I'm really glad that you just said that. Okay, so I'm sorry that I'm like interrupting and, and breaking into your point here, but I want you to make a case for why the combination of these abilities on a three mana sorcery speed planeswalker. Uh, becomes a card that you think will utterly change and shape the legacy format. I think the fact that it's just a combination of all these cards, like you're asking me uniquely, if I have A, would it be good? If I have C, would it be good? Well, no, by themselves, it's just not enough, right? But the power level of A plus C plus B plus whatever is what makes it good enough, right? Like. Well, that's judgment I mean, that's, that's very clearly the general argument, but let's let's break down uh, what you think. So we didn't get into the last ability, right? Or did we? And I uh, tuned out. It's like until the next, yeah, the plus one, yeah. Okay. What would you pay for this? So can you read the plus one? Sure. Order? So it's until your next turn, you may cast sorcery spells as though they had flash. Okay. So this card already exists in Quicken without the draw card. Right. Would you ever play Quicken? Actually, you have, haven't you? Uh, I don't think I have. I think another pro, maybe in Santa Clara, played Quicken with Supreme Verdict. Okay, so Quicken is an instant that cantrips mm-hmm. for one for one mana. It right. has this effect, correct? Correct. Okay, so the combination of these three effects, what makes you think that it that that is the card that um, solves all of basically all the problems that this deck wants to solve. Or just actually tell us what your theory is of what this card does from, I guess, Miracles first. Okay. And then why it's like super good. So first of all, the the primary effect that is appealing to me is the minus three. The minus three um, frees me from Chalice, frees me from Choke for like maybe at least one turn. Uh, plus it has draw a card tacked onto it, which is pretty absurd in my opinion. Um, so, so how good is that? So you, you said that's a, the primary reason you like it? Yeah. Okay. And I think that's actually critical because the deck is... That is just one of the mo- the biggest gaping holes in the deck, which is um, you just lose to artifacts and enchantments that you that don't naturally line up well or that your, your answers, like Swords to Plowshares and Terminus, don't naturally line up well against. So this kind of... like This card is generic enough where and not like overly cost like four CMC. I think the the line between three and four. I don't know how to objectively quantify it, but I feel like that's like the tipping point. Three CMC is like fine um, for getting. We're already paying that rate to get rid of cards like Chalice and Choke, right? 
So you're saying get rid of. This new Teferi does not get rid of those cards. And that's the difference between Council's Judgment and this Teferi is that it's a temporary answer. So if you don't have Forcible in your hand, you're going to lose to this Choke when it gets recast or something very similar. Because decks casting Choke also play creatures. So they're going to attack this Teferi. So Teferi only has four loyalty and it's minus three. So even if they only have a one power creature in play, this Teferi is going to die. Yeah, yeah, and that's where sort of speculation is coming in, right? Like, it just so happens that this deck also is really good at removing creatures, and obviously, like, putting the putting myself in the bind of, like, oh, there's a choke and a chalice in play. You can't remove creatures. Like, that makes sense, but, you know, there are enough removal spells, enough Terminus and Supreme Verdicts in the 75 where you might be able to get to the point where Teferi can bounce a card, or even if it's naturally just, like, making land drops so that one and on one turn you can play Teferi, bounce the chalice and then like maybe play a couple cantrips or something like that or bounce the choke or something like that so that you can play a couple cantrips or something like that to find what you need to it's not the perfect solution i'll give you that much but i think it does so much in one card aka the power level is like so high that it's worth it it's worth it to you know play with all the downsides of it i have a good uh, data thing that I would like you to quantify. So when you start testing this Teferi, I would like you to start taking notice of how many matches you play against decks with true name where you lose the true name nemesis because you do not have Council's Judgment in your main okay. deck. Sure. Uh, uh, I, I, will, I, will, I will tell... I, I, this, is, this may not be fair or not, but I think uh, also when you introduce a new card like Teferi into your deck, it's not just fair to like make a one-to-one swap. Like you mentioned earlier, it's not a one-to-one swap. So I think you have to compensate with other... You know, like when you add this card in, you introduce new holes into the deck and you need to find a way to sort of seal the holes with cards, certain card choices. So maybe that's like the second Supreme Verdict, the fifth Sweeper, or I don't know, like more Counterspells, Forces, I, whatever, whatever it is. It's, but yes, I can definitely do that. And I, I don't mind sharing those results either. Um, I'll definitely be streaming it also. All right. Can I share my more detailed thoughts here? Yes. Absolutely not. So you're right that if you're playing this card, it has to be for that minus three ability, which is the really the most the only relevant ability on the card. Bouncing an artifact creature or enchantment, not a planeswalker, right? And draw a card. Bouncing planeswalker is oftentimes not great, but I say planeswalker because even though you're you are trying to get away from the comparison to council's judgment, I really think council's judgment is one of the cards that is probably uh, a swap for this. You're, you are likely playing this over something like that. And I think that that's obviously a significant answer to Planeswalkers in general. So this is taking out a card that deals with Planeswalkers in your deck. Um, and it's uh, essentially you're making a tempo play that is uh, essentially even on cards because you have to have this card in play for a significant amount of time to actually you know, get, card, get card advantage out of it. Um, the other thing is, I think people seem to be overestimating the plus one significantly on this card. I, so as a yeah, go on. I think I agree with you on that. So I'm just curious what the cases are that people are really excited about. I mean, are you flashing in your portent? You know, <laughs> I um, I'm definitely excited about the passive. Each opponent can only cast uh, spells anytime they could cast a sorcery. I think that is big. Um, and I'm certainly excited about the minus three. Those are the two big ones. Um, in matchups where the passive effect is great, mm-hmm. is those are the matchups where the minus three 
is the only relevant ability on the card. Is when is when it's great. Wait, what are you saying? The matchups where the passive ability is relevant, the minus three is off. Exactly. Okay, that's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to pose it as a question. Because you're but, a uh, very, very smart and wise <laughs> bald man. Uh, so, I, no, I disagree. I think like in the Stoneblade matchup, for example, it, there is definitely like utility out of the passive and bouncing a creature, like time walking the Stoneforge Mystic is extremely powerful. Um, or parse the sentence, you know what I'm trying to say. Bouncing the Stoneforge Mystic, clearing the board on turn three is very powerful. And then you get to untap and you have a window to slam like a Jace the Mind Sculptor or some other haymaker, like an uncounterable counterbalance kind of deal. Um, also against Delver, I think that's pretty powerful. Uh, the static ability to make Lightning Bolt not instant speed to turn off like dazes and other forms of counter magic is really relevant. And if you even bounce a Delver, that's that's pretty powerful. Uh, and again, I want to point out you're drawing a card on top of that too. So even though even though you're committing three mana, it's replacing itself. And yes, they might get to redeploy, but you're buying time, which is exactly what this deck wants. Okay. So that's an interesting argument. I think that you mentioned though that the in in your reasoning for why the minus three is good, you said that you don't really care about creatures because the vast majority of the miracles deck is killing creatures, right? Um, in the context of choke and chalice. Yeah, and but that's why you're excited about a card like this, which I would argue is why you're playing a card like Council's Judgment as well, as it's sort of a catch-all for these difficult to deal with permanents. And I I agree that a catch-all bounce spell that replaces itself is probably being used in a Miracles deck because there's these really hateful permanents that exist in the format, right? So I agree with the original sentiment that you had, and I think that in order to make the argument that you're making now, you have to come up with scenarios in which the bounce is actually good in a specific mid-game situation against a creature. Um, I agree that this card is exactly at its best against a blue stone blade deck because of the exact reason that the two relevant abilities on the card are decent in the matchup, right? So the bounce is better against that than a mirror match um, or something like that because they're making these proactive uh, creature-esque mid-rangey plays with like a Stoneforge Mystic. But if you don't get the exact situation in which you are targeting one of the few permanents in their deck, it's still not very good, right? And the main static ability is obviously usable in, in, a, in a blue matchup there. I but, also think it, I also just want to point out, I think the static ability is very good against non-blue decks too, specifically against Punishing Fire and Abrupt Decay. Like, you could, you could tempo out, in some ways, tempo out your opponent by playing this, but the fact that you're, you're also not you're investing three mana sort of negates the tempo advantage that you would have of playing a card like this. So I would agree with your sentiment if I were playing a, I don't know, like something that was a lot more proactive and it let me play into open mana. And that's like a really big tempo swing in, in a game, I think. Um, but you are, you're definitely using your turn to cast a fairy and if they don't get to use open mana and then have to use their turn to kill Teferi, you're sort of generally back to parity at that point. Um, but I can understand that, you know, maybe there's a sub game of, of the bounce. You're also getting tempo and you're replacing uh, itself on the, on the bounce with a card and, and what have you. 
you get into this sort of tempo black hole. But Miracles isn't doing well on tempo to begin with, so I just don't know if you're going to be able to press the advantage with that type of effect in that situation. I have a few things to unpack here. One, Anurag is finally learning the correct usage of the word tempo, so I'm very, very proud of him. Uh, The second thing is that he used this Teferi example against Delver. So you're expecting to resolve a three-mana sorcery speed card against a deck with days and the rising popularity of Spell Pierce on top of their own Force of Wills to protect them against this card so if they don't have spell peers days or force they're probably not really interacting with the plus one ability anyway they might have a bolt but they could just bolt you in response so like how relevant is that to begin with and on top of that how these delver decks traditionally beat you is with true name nemesis it's not with delver of secrets they beat you because you play three copies of terminus and that's all you have in order to deal with their true name so they're typical strategies protect the queen so if you're sitting there with this teferi in play they're just going to attack it twice with true name so that way they can continue protecting their own card that's going to eventually kill you because you cut your answer to it well i mean all right just to be like slightly semantic most most lists are playing between four to five sweepers and straight blue white uh three plus one supreme verdict um but i i do agree with you cutting console's judgment for teferi you know, does make you a little bit weaker to the true names. Um, the one upside, though, is that the few terminus that you do have are almost certain to resolve when Teferi is in play because your opponent, the card literally says they cannot counter it. Uh, okay, it doesn't literally say that, but it it, it basically get says that your opponent cannot counter it. Um, and yeah, I know it, it is it is a three mana spell, and that is one of the downsides. I mean, obviously, if they made it at two mana, the card would be ridiculous, and I don't think anyone would, even Wilson wouldn't, you know, uh, say otherwise to that. But if it was a two mana planeswalker with the same abilities, yeah, yeah, I think that'd be a playable card <laughs> with four loyalty. Uh, anyways, so no, I'm no, no I'm not going to over exaggerate here and get on this train. I do not think that it would be the most absurd thing on the planet if it were a two mana card. Interesting. I, think, I don't think it would break the format. Okay, that's fair. Um, do you? I I don't know. I I think it would be very good in the format. Yeah, I, think I, I would, would take be... that stance. I think it would be very good in the format, yeah. So this card is already going to be reasonable in Vintage, and if it were two mana, it would just be an absolute home run in Vintage. Yeah. Uh, turn one to Fairy would be ridiculous. But, I mean, also going back to the point on, like, spell pierces and dazes and things like that, you could also say that, you know, Council's Judgment falls suffers the same, the same uh, loopholes. Um, to a degree... Like, if they don't have it, um, I don't know, the card gets you closer to winning, though, because it, like, still at least guarantees that future top deck counterspells won't be able to interact with your mentors, your jaces, your counterbalances, and things like that. So, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not gonna, you know, you guys have definitely swayed me a little bit. I still think the card is gonna be, I think it's absolutely worth testing. Yeah, I think that, that much is for sure. Um... Sure. Okay, I'll I'll, ju- I'll jump in because we just had this. I, I think it is reasonable to test this card. Thank I think you. it is more reasonable to test this than pernicious deed and storm. Okay. Pernicious deed. And <laughs> um, that being said, you know maybe it's not the the nine or ten out of ten all star that I thought it was. It's may- maybe like a solid seven, six and a half. Maybe we'll see what the reality of the card is. Um, but yeah, you know, thank you for being such a diplomatic and and friendly guy. I'm always like that. I, I never take aggressive stances. 
Or and I, I never publicly a... show my stuff because that would be very inappropriate. Um, okay, Anurag, your hair is bad. Dang, you know what, Brian? I love you for who you are, and that's the end of that thought. Um, cool. So, guys, we're gonna wrap it up here now. Um, thank you for listening. Um, look, we, we're gonna try again. Jerry's going to be on this podcast one way or the other. It's going to happen. I don't think we should invite him back. I like Jerry. Shout out to the leaving, leaving a legacy open this weekend. Bryant will be competing. I will be commentating. It will be streamed. And there's also another legacy event, paper legacy event that will be streamed on Sunday. I believe it's at a place called fire and ice uh, game store in LA. So this weekend, it sounds like there are back to back, paper legacy events to watch on twitch mm-hmm. and if you want to play legacy if you want to play legacy there's also the ptq on saturday so um sorry it might be on sunday double check it do your homework uh but it's this weekend for sure um and on that note uh this is honorog brighton wilson checking out we'll see you on the next episode